yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. The first time human beings set foot on the moon. <laughs> As many of you know, I have been profoundly inspired by Apollo 11 of late. I find it incredible that President Kennedy set a goal of putting humans on the moon by the end of the decade and that thousands of people, millions of people, really rallied around this goal. They overcame enormous technological challenges and accomplished something that still still seems impossible. As I've studied Apollo 11, one of the striking things for me is that after a decade of work, the mission nearly ended just minutes short of completion. Moments after Eagle, the Apollo 11 lunar module, detached from lunar orbit, the cockpit was lit up by an alarm. Here they are, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, 239,000 miles from the planet Earth, in a vessel whose walls are two one thousandths of an inch thick. Two one thousandths of an inch. Here they are descending to the surface of the moon and something has gone wrong. Folks, at MIT had developed an incredible computer that helped guide the lunar module using information from Earth combined with cues from the astronauts. It's a really incredible system. Instead of monitoring location by sensing things around it or measuring things nearby, what the lunar module's computer did was track distance by calculating where it had been for that entire time. It calculated how much fuel it spent, its acceleration, etc. However, this giant leap in computer engineering is now flashing an alarm code, 1202, 1202. No one knew what it meant. <laughs> Back on Earth at Mission Control in Houston, flight controllers rifled through a huge list of potential computer alarms and their implications for the mission. Meanwhile, Back in space, the alarm kept flashing and then going off, flashing and then going off. 1202, 1202. After 40 seconds of silence. 40 seconds of silence is a long time. The flight controllers found it. 
12.02. It meant that the computer was receiving too many messages at once. The computer was distracted. Distraction. It happens to everyone. (laughs) You walk into a room and forget what you were looking for. You visit your nieces and nephews and they spend the whole time glued to their iPads. You go to look up something on YouTube and you end up watching cat videos. In an age when devices are constantly ringing and pinging and dinging at us, distraction comes with the territory. Today, Jesus reminds us that human beings have always been distracted. (laughs) We have always worried, we've always fretted, we've always been distracted. It is part of human nature. Brene Brown describes this as being wired for struggle. As in, when we lived among the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, we needed to stay aware of our surroundings. But our animal awareness also produces a great deal of anxiety. It just does. If we worry constantly about being eaten, we miss the opportunity to relish in the quiet moments of summer. It's been a beautiful week. We can be distracted. Today, Jesus addresses the age-old problem of distraction through his interaction with two sisters, Mary and Martha. And before we dive into this story, I just want to point out that this story is a hard one. It's hard in part because it carries a lot of baggage. A lot of baggage. For years in the church, it was used to shame women Folks would ask the question, are you a Mary or a Martha? (laughs) The reality is that we are all, always, both. We are all Mary and Martha. This story is also pigeonholed women. It has limited the roles of women instead of doing what it can and should do turn our focus to the divine and remind us that from the very beginning, women were at the center of Jesus' followers. There were women with Jesus, and those women were the prime example of discipleship. The prime example of discipleship. Okay, let's look at this story. Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. To be clear, Martha is a good character in the story, right? She is excited. She's the one that invites Jesus over. Great. Now, Martha gets distracted by her many tasks. Martha gets a 12.02 alarm. She is so worked up that she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? 
In Martha's eyes, it's a zero-sum game. For Mary to win, Martha must lose. Mary can only enjoy her time with Jesus if she is neglecting her chores. Martha cannot enjoy Jesus because she has work to do. But that is not true. That is not what's going on in this story. In the Middle Ages, this passage about Mary and Martha was central to this distinction between the contemplative life and the active life. The contemplative life was life in the monastery, a place where you could pray and live in such a way that everything you did was oriented toward God. Contemplative life. In contrast, the so-called active life was business, work, family life, normal human existence. The active life. In other words, life was either or. You were either active or contemplative. But take another look at this passage. Jesus' objection is not that Martha is working or active. Jesus' beef with Martha is that she is worried and distracted. Martha is so worried and distracted that she is being a bad hostess. She has spoiled her hospitality, her main task at hand. Remember, hospitality in this culture is critical. It is the highest good. That is what we're getting at in this passage with Abraham, where Abraham shows up and shows hospitality, right? And then is revealed God's abundance and the promise of his destiny. Hospitality is crucial. What does Martha do? Martha gets mad at her guest. Martha gets mad at her guest. We don't hear Martha getting mad at Mary. We hear Martha complaining to Jesus. Worry and distraction destroy hospitality. Have you ever been to somebody's house and they're running around doing a thousand things instead of talking to you? Have you ever had a conversation with someone when they spend their time going back and forth between you and their phone? Have you ever talked with someone and known that they are not listening? (laughs) Such are the effects of distraction on hospitality. Distraction and worry diffuse our energy, attention, and focus. Jesus is not a fan. This is not the only case in which Jesus criticizes distraction and worry. In Luke's gospel alone, there are several explicit instructions not to worry. In Luke 12, 12, it's a little tirade. Do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you'll do with your body. Do not worry. Can worrying add a single hour of span to your life? Don't keep worrying. Instead, strive for the kingdom of God and the things, these things will be given to you as well. What matters is God and God's kingdom. Justice. Shalom. The other things don't matter. Worry only distracts you. A similar story comes up in the parable of the sower. The sower scatters seeds. Some fall on the road. Some falls on the soil. Some falls in the weeds, which choke the seed as it sprouts. What are the weeds? Worries, 
and distractions. This week, I came across this Washington Post headline. Quote, Trump's tweets are a distraction. The article went on to say, the president's modus operandi is create chaos, distract the masses, look mad, and take care of business. In this extraordinarily disturbing period, it is so upsetting to see the lack of morals in politics on all sides. In particular, the explicit racism that the president expresses and empowers is staggering. To counter this evil, we must maintain focus. We must not be distracted. We must stop letting Trump distract us from God's kingdom. We must strive for justice in God's presence. Contrast this period in which we are living, this period of distraction politics, with that moment from Apollo 11. As Neil Armstrong stepped off the lunar module onto the surface of the moon, people all over the planet stopped what they were doing and watched on live TV. The attention of the whole planet was focused on one thing. There is need of only one thing. Jesus praises Mary because of her focus. There is need of only one thing. You can call it mindfulness. You can call it focus, attention, awareness. But whatever you call it, it is crucial that we understand what Mary does in this passage. Mary doesn't do transcendental meditation. She isn't doing like a full lotus levitation practice or parting the Red Sea. Mary is with Jesus. Mary knows how to be present with Jesus. Mary Beth sometimes likes to jokingly bring up this kind of uh, palm pun that comes across in, the, in popular culture a lot. It goes like this. Today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. <laughs> I know it's a little ridiculous, but it's true. It's true. Presence is a gift. Our presence is a gift, bringing our focus, our whole being to what we are doing and what we are experiencing is a gift that we can give. It's a gift that can transform the world. If we can give the gift of our presence to our family, 
give the gift of our presence to our friends, give the gift of our presence to our neighbors, give the gift of presence to our passions, give the gift of our presence to our fears, to acknowledge them, give the gift of our presence to a world that is struggling, to a planet that is being torn asunder, to people, children, who are put in prisons. Give the gift of our presence. God is not asking us to change who we are, to become somebody else. God is simply asking for our presence. Give the gift of our presence to God and neighbor. Amen.